welcome aboard, ladies and gentlemen. This is Nick. And Janelle. And uh, we want to thank you for joining us on another episode of Beyond the Vow. And um, boy, this is going to be an uh, interesting one, I think. Well, it's, it's going to be uh, informative. How about that? I think it work. That works. So <clears throat> um, I'm just going to put a little disclaimer out there. I really don't know how I'll react in this one. Honestly, have no clue. I'm just going to leave it completely real and open. Um, and what happens, happens. So um, some of you, uh, probably most of you, are aware of uh, some of the events that transpired over the past um, week. So um, we've tried to keep everybody up to date pretty much as to um, dad's condition and what was going on with him. Um, and it, it has been, so this whole thing basically started back, I believe it was September 27th, mm -hmm. um, involving three hospitals, a um, ambulance trip being transported up to OSU, um, and then to St. Mary's in Huntington, uh, West Virginia. And uh, it has just been, uh, can I say a nightmare? It's been a nightmare. <clears throat> it's been a bit of a nightmare. So um, <clears throat> for those of you that may be just joining us um, in the end, for those of you who have been part of this for a while, um, you know, um, I, I just want to kind of set the background a little bit as to what was going on. Through this whole, dad basically um, had uh, symptoms of another stroke, went to one of the hospitals, uh, was it started to deteriorate fast, was transported to OSU, and um, basically the stem of his brain uh, was so damaged, um, and his he had a vessel that was never had never healed quite properly, and it was throwing little clots, and these clots were causing problems and producing just. I mean, multiple mini strokes and just all over the place. And it explained a lot <clears throat> because there were days, you know, dad, dad suffered a, his first major stroke. I think it was 2018. Uh, was it? No, 16, 16. It was 16. And, um, after that, he just, you know, he'd have, he, he went through rehab, came out of it and he was doing pretty well. And then looking back, you go, you know, there were, there were time periods where it's like he was, you noticed that for some reason he had regressed and you couldn't figure out why. And after talking. I rode him so hard about walking too. I know. Like you got to get up and, and walk and do I this. Mean, yeah. It really did help in that moment. Like, but there were other things going on. Yeah. And, and unbeknownst to us, he was most likely tossing more of these little clots and they were causing issues <clears> and <throat> it was just setting him back. Um, and I was talking to somebody the other day and I said, you know what, if you look at his photo of his 66th birthday and his 67th, if you look at those two photos, there is a drastic difference. And, and you wouldn't know it at the time if this you're there. So subtle. Right. You but if you look day. at him, you go, oh, wow, like something, something isn't right. So um, for those of you who did not know, like dad did pass away. And uh, he passed away December 8th, about 6, 10 p.m. 
um, mom had got a phone call from, um, I think it's called, is it called, um, what's it called over there? It was um, Cornerstone. Cornerstone of St. Mary's. It's LTAC, a long-term, um, long-term acute hospital. Mm-hmm. You got a, we got a phone call and mom messaged me. And this is, it's one of those phone calls that you dread, you know, because for the whole past couple months, you don't realize just how much mental stress you're under because you are on edge all hours of the night. Uh, throughout the day because you don't know when you're going to get that call and you're afraid you're going to miss the call. And, uh, I get the call about seven, it was about seven or eight in the morning. And mom's like, uh, you know, he's, they said it's, he's probably going to go in a few days or a couple weeks at max. And, um, so me, you, um, my cousin, my sister and my mom, we all loaded up and we drove up to, uh, St. Mary's. And when we got there, um, the doctor came in and told us that like his lungs were shutting down or had shut down just about, um, that brain stem and all that different parts of his brain were dead. Um, his kidneys were shutting down. Um, there was something else that was shutting his stomach, I think was also shutting down where he wasn't processing foods. So um, the major things were his lungs, his kidneys, his brain, mm-hmm. um, and his, what was the fourth there was something else. His stomach wasn't doing well either with Mm-mm. food, I don't think. Liver. Liver, was that it? <clears throat> so he was going through multiple organ failure at this point. Uh, when we were at Ohio State, Ohio State, you know, I will say this, that <clears throat> when it comes to expertise, they are probably some of the best. When it comes to their bedside manner, they are some of the worst. Um, and they were very blunt and in some situations kind of rude. Yeah, you could have the best care and the best programming and be one of the best hospitals. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think sometimes that is overemphasized and they forget, well, we're the best. So I don't have to treat you like a person. Yeah. And, um, one of the doctors was actually so rude about dad, um, and just, trying to emphasize the need to pull the plug on him. And this is about two months ago before we really understood just how bad things were. And he but was not giving any information as to right, why. Right. And I watched this and we'll get to this a little more in depth, but I watched that evening as we went in there and the doctor came in and he was so kind and it made it. We're talking St. Mary's. Yeah. It made it so easy. Mm-hmm. You had gotten to that point. Garen had gotten to that point. Your mom and sister were not to the point of saying that yet. But the doctor made it so easy. And mm-hmm. I watched their exchange between your sister and your mom happen mm-hmm. without a word being said. Mm-hmm. You knew what had to be done. Yeah. And uh, what, when referring to OSU, um, I think their care is phenomenal. But when it comes to the bedside manner, it was just kind of bad. And to the point that my uncle actually um, talked to one of the doctors and he said, look, you're off the case. He said, we don't want you talking to Teresa anymore because he was so rude. And I look at it from like the perspective. If I look at it from the perspective of the physician, they have probably seen this a thousand times. They know exactly how it's going to go. And they probably get frustrated because to them, it's an open and shut case. They can see it because they've been down that road before. Right. What they have to remember is that you have a family who has not been down that road before. And you have to have a little bit of empathy and a little bit of understanding um, with a family. Mm -hmm. 
anyway, uh, we we get to this point where we're at, um, you know mom gets a phone call um, from the hospital, uh, St. Mary's. And it's about five in the morning, and they said his blood pressure had dropped and was at the point where he would no longer be able to um, maintain his normal blood pressure. Um, and so they were putting him on some kind of medication to elevate it. Um, and without that elevate, without that medication, it was, he'd be over right. with. Uh, so we got there and I'll be honest with you. I don't think I was expect, we were expecting, cause one of the options they have was that he would go to uh, ICU. Mm-hmm. Okay. At St. Mary's. That was the plan. That was, that was the plan. But we started talking and in his condition and how bad off he was. We thought one of the worst ways for him to go would be in some situation where they're having to break out shock paddles or they're having to do whatever and they're having to try to resuscitate him. And with how fragile he had become, it would be one of the most painful ways to go. And we thought if we do hospice care, we can basically leave this up to him. If he's able to pull out of this, he will. He'll breathe on his own. Um, you know, all this. Mm-hmm. And we, I know some of you have been praying and many people have been praying for him. And we were hoping for some kind of miracle. We were hoping that God would um, heal him to where we could keep him for longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in essence, we had kind of put this off as long as we could because we were trying to give God as much time as possible. That was, that's really what we were doing. But yesterday we realized that if God was going to deliver him, he had over two and a half months or so to do so. And we were at a point now. Not yesterday. Huh? Not yesterday. What do you mean yesterday? You said yesterday we realized. Oh, I'm sorry. If if I make mistakes, it's because my mind has literally been everywhere. Um, But we got to a point there that day in the room with dad that um, if we, we have, we had given God since September 27th. And if God hadn't made a move by now, then he is obviously there. There was going to be no recovery like that. So we talked to the physicians and the people that were there at, was it, did you say Cornerstone? Yeah. Super kind, super easy. One of the ladies that was there who's an LPN actually had worked with mom in another facility. So that helped a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Um, so very kind people. And so they went in and they went ahead and uh, they took him off the vent, but gave him oxygen and they gave him Dilaudid, uh, but not morphine because morphine will shut your heart down. Um, and so they did Dilaudid to, to help with pain and everything like that. And they had a little EKG, a uh, little monitor on him or whatever. And he was off the vent at about, I want to say. It's like 10 till 6. Something like that, like 550, 5.45, 5.50, and by 6.10, he was gone uh, just that quick. Like, he had completely become so dependent on the um, machines and the vent and everything else involved. So that night, um, I'll tell you, it was hard. Um, One of the hardest things, and... Joe uh, Welch had covered this in one of his podcasts, and I appreciate you covering it because it's something that I I deal with and I struggle with. Vulnerability as a man. And in that situation, you know, I've had people die in my extended circle, 
you know. When I say extended circle, I mean grandparents, uncles, aunts, things like that. I've never had it from my inner circle, which is brothers, sisters, mom, dad, you know. And to see dad going, and you're sitting there, and that little EKG monitor is slowly but surely heading towards zero. And I mean, at one point, mentally, it's like I wanted to panic because I thought this, it, it, just for a brief moment, it's like, this can't be. I'm losing my dad. He is dying in front of me. There's got to be something I can do. And then you realize it's out of your hands. Yeah. You can't do a single thing. And um, I held his hand, and um, I knew when he was gone because when I held his hand, uh, I let go a little bit, and I came back, held his hand again, and it had cooled, and finally he was cold. Um, and he, you know, I'm going to... I want to share this. This is something strange. I'll say strange. Some of you will think it's strange. And I've got a lot to cover in this podcast. I, long time, let me, let me start my backstory here. A long time ago. Well, long time ago. 2009 is when I received my call to preach. Nobody called me on the phone. It was, you know, you can ask every minister out there. God calls you to preach and you know it. And my call came when I was leaving a electrical play company that I used to work for back around 2009 in Barbersville, West Virginia, I was going out to my car. I had gotten in it. I was going to head home, shut the door, took my keys out. And I was just about ready to put my keys in the ignition. And I like to explain it like this. Your thoughts kind of flow. My thoughts flow on a conveyor belt one to the next. They just keep coming. But you can tell when God inserts something into your normal flow of thinking because it's abrupt. At least for me it is. Mm-hmm. And it's sudden, it's abrupt, and it's, it's, it's not your doing. And you know it. It's almost like you have a bunch of circles coming through, and then a big square goes pow, it just sticks in there. And it's like, what? And I was just about ready to stick my key in the ignition of the car, and a th- one of those thoughts... Interject was interjected into my normal flow of thinking. And this is what I heard in my head. Have you ever thought of preaching? And I literally, I'm not making this up, I froze. Right as my key was about ready to do in the ignition, I sat there and out loud, I said, God, me become a preacher? And I laughed out loud, put my key in the rest of the way and drove home. Over the next couple of weeks and months, there was only way I can describe it is almost like you had this internal fire in the center of your being that got hotter and hotter. And it was like something was was pushing you. You must preach. And it just got worse and worse and worse until finally the day came. I preached my first sermon at Jackson Avenue. I was in the back in the sound room. I was as nervous as could be. Went through all the pregame jitters. You know, you got to go to the bathroom. You're thirsty. I mean, you're, 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 you got your suit on. You're all decked out. Is my, are my notes all together? What am I going? And I'm so nervous. I'm like, I'm going to get up there, and it's going to be an absolute mess, and we'll be terrible. And one of those thoughts interjected again as I was standing there and said this, why would I put you up there to fail? And from that point on, I was never nervous again when it came to preaching. Because I thought, if God called me to that, he didn't call me to make a mockery of me. He called me for a purpose. He called me to do a job. And he didn't put me up there to laugh at me. And I know if I've got his backing and his support, there's nothing that can stand against me, including my nerves. And 
the rest is history. And I've been preaching now since I want to say it's roughly 2010. So we're talking uh, 13, getting close to 14 years I've been preaching. The reason I say this, and I use that story, is one of those thought processes interjected itself when I was sitting there next to, well, I was either sitting or standing next to dad and I was holding his hand. And I looked at him and he, to my remembrance, had already been taken off of the vent. And I was just kind of looking at him and I wasn't thinking about um, this. I, I was sitting there and you're looking at your mom, you're looking at your sister, you're looking at your uncle, you're looking at your brother and you're, you're seeing people. You're trying not to look at your wife because she's weeping in the yeah, corner. People are crying and, and, <laughs> and people are sad. They don't want to see him go. And, and you're looking at your dad and the EKG and all this, all this is going through my mind. And I'm holding, from what I remember, I was sitting there and I was holding his hand. And all of a sudden, one of those thoughts interjected itself, and it was dad. And it was the loudest shout I have ever heard him make. And it was a yes. It was like, yes, like so loud. And just, it was full of release and it was victory. And it was relief, and it was like he, he hit something like you accomplished, like, yes, like, finally. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what was that? And I kind of had one of those moments where I froze for a second, but then you're looking at everybody around you, and they're all kind of torn up and as he's you know dying. And, and I didn't think about it until the next day when I woke up, and it came back to me, and I thought, what was that? And then I started to think about it, and I thought, you know what? I know exactly the moment he passed. I know the moment he left, and it was at that moment where he broke out of this mortal body and he went to heaven was with that shout. Call me crazy if you want, but hey, you know, many people call us crazy who are Christians. There's been stranger things out there, but True. once you jump on that other side of the tracks as a believer, there's a lot of strange things out there to become normal really, really quick because there's a spiritual world and there's a lot of things that take place that you wouldn't believe until you're on that side. So um, I know where dad went. He was a godly man. He was a Christian. He was a pastor. Um, he was a district chairman at one point for the Bible Methodist in Tennessee. Um, you know, he uh, did so much. He really did. He was a good godly guy. Um, but uh, it made such an impression on me when that thought entered my mind. And I thought, I knew the moment he left was when I heard that shout in my head. And I wasn't trying to manufacture it. I wasn't looking for that. You know, I'm looking at everybody. But it was, it was so abrupt. It was abrupt, like when I got that call to preach, like when God said, I'm, I wouldn't call you up there to make fun of you. It was that kind of a thing. And once you have that relationship with God and that kind of thing happens enough, you start to become very familiar with his handiwork to where you know when he's doing something. You, mm -hmm. you, you know. When you know, you know. Yes. So... Um, you know, it, it has been tough um, as a guy, you know, uh, I remember, you know, I, as a guy, you, you kind of feel like you're taught not to cry. Well, you are. It's, it's, it's a thing. It's very hard, especially when you reach that point where you were trying your best and it rises up in you and you're trying to slam it back down as hard as you can. You're biting your lip. You're trying to look at something else, move your eyes. You're like, you're panicking internally. You know, you're looking at something else. You're trying to think of something else or uh, you, you change the subject or you talk about something or whatever. You don't look at somebody else who's emotional because you don't want to key off them. 
I mean, I probably exercise, but I will tell you that is from experience, having been so into it now and having dealt with that, that is not, the, and my wife would sit there and say, told you so, but it is not the healthiest. I do not say those things. It is not the healthiest thing to do because this is how I put it. By doing that, you are writing a check that at some point down the road, you will cash. And the more that you continue to hold that in and you try to push it off to the side, it's going to come get you one day. And it's not healthy to just let it build up over time. You've got, you kind of got to embrace it. And that's where, <coughs> sorry, I have what Nick refers to the 100 day cough after COVID. <laughs> Holding that stuff inside builds up a resentment, can build up a resentment, a questioning, Mm -hmm. self-loathing, guilt. And you're going to go through the stages of grief, which include guilt anyway. Mm -hmm. Those aren't linear. They're not, okay, so I am done with the anger portion of it, so now I move into the bargaining. And now that I'm done with bargaining, I'm going to move from that into the guilt Mm -hmm. and then into the depression and then into the acceptance. Isn't there five phases to that, or is there six? There is. There's five. And there is... That isn't... That isn't grief. Mm-hmm. You can hit all five of those stages in one day. And then the next day, mm-hmm. you're going to hit two of them. Yeah. It, it's not linear. It's not clinical. It's not, it doesn't move from one to the next to the next. And then you're done and then you feel better. It, that, that's, you can that's kind not, of move around. Yeah. I will tell you, the only time in my life I ever went through all five in 10 seconds was when I got on Diamondback. <clears throat> I got on Diamondback at Kings Island. And I got on that thing and didn't know what I was doing. And once it started up the hill towards the top of the first drop, I went through all five phases in about 10 seconds. <laughs> I was questioning my life choices and my purpose really, really hard. <laughs> um, but anyway, it, it's, I, I learned it's not, he- it's not healthy. Um, and there is some release and some, some relief when you do give into those emotions. And I'll tell you, it's kind of hard where, um, maybe as a, as a guy, you know, single guy, um, you generally kept all that to yourself and then you get married and then your wife is a therapist and that must, that must suck sometimes. Well, I mean, you're having to basically (laughs) bear your soul to another person and it's hard to be vulnerable to another person. You know, and, and let another person see you cry or see you struggle or, or whatever it could be or to share in that grief. Um, that's tough, you know, to actually bear your soul to another person. Um, but anyway, um, after he passed, you know, I'll just tell you, it was like a blur. Um, it was moving so fast because he didn't just linger. I mean, like 20 minutes gone, just pow, just that fast. Um, I think it would have been worse, though, if he would have lingered. Yes, it and, would have. And for hours, and we would have been staying there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We we left, and I told Janelle, it's like, you know, we got to do something this evening to kind of um, um, leave this day on a good note. And not like we're trying Rewrite to be... Rewrite memories. Yeah. So yeah. We, I got, we got on... Um, 
<laughs> when I think of Little Caesars, I think of that meme that has that little raccoon, and he's like, I'm going to live healthy. And then the next caption, it shows him pulling up to the drive-thru, and it says, give me the garbage. You know, <laughs> <laughs> little Caesars is like, it's just it's cheap. It'll get you, it'll get by, it'll, you know, whatever. But um, we ordered a bunch of Little Caesars, and I had Garen and, and Jared pick it up on the way through Wheelersburg. And we all got together at our house. And I don't think everybody left till close to like what one. And in my head, I was thinking. And I mean, again, we're being vulnerable and real. Mm-hmm. I take no medications anymore. Mm-hmm. Not for cramps, not for headaches, not for anything, because of our fertility journey. Right. My head. We had headaches. Yes. So bad we were from so the crying stressed. that I. I was actually nauseated and I thought I was going to have to have you pull over and let me throw up. But in my mind, I was like, but tonight has to happen. It had to. We, we all came together here. And what we did is we came. And I was home. like, Oh, they won't be here for very long. That's what I told you. Remember? Mm-hmm. I don't envision this going very long because everybody's tired. Everybody's going to need to go home. Oh no. Rest and whatever. Yeah. No, 1230. Kind of, kind of went opposite. We, uh, we had pizza, we had different food and stuff, and, and uh, we had Christmas music on, and because it's what Dad would have wanted, it's what Dad would have liked, and um, we, we celebrated his life, and we got together, Tim was on the piano, he was playing, and people were all singing hymns and Christmas music, and, and uh, that piano was so out of tune, I texted your, mo- text your mom and I said, at this point, we're about, <laughs> we're about three whiskey glasses short of a tavern at this point. <laughs> it, was, it was just, <laughs> it was wild. Um, but it was, it was good. It was a way to put a, a little bit of happy on the end of the day. Yeah. Um, Sunday, so he passed Friday. Sunday was kind of tough. We ended up going to the funeral home and you're having to sit there and and make plans and, and discuss your poor policies. Mom was, sick. mom was so sick. We now realize it wasn't COVID. It was just she. She was having like an emotional collapse. Yeah, she had was, a fever. Like it was. Yeah, we thought she had COVID or the flu or something. It was so bad. And then, uh, like today, after she took some core seeding and stuff, and she kind of like it, she actually slept. Yeah, she slept. She's fine today. Nothing. She's great. Um, but we we were you know you go down there and and this. It's almost like you were finally, for the first time, involved in the business side of, an, of a death close to you. Oh, yeah. You're you're making the plans. Let me tell you, Dad had actually written, some of you that may have seen the obituary, he wrote about 70% of that, I would say, 70 75%. All I did was update some elements and add some things in that I know he would have wanted. Um, and I th- worked with Mom a little bit um, and had some other people contribute as well, like from the family. We, we put all his pictures together. Um, we did, um, what else was there? Oh, the music. We put all the music together. So literally when we went there for the meeting with the, with the funeral director, it was, it was an hour in and out. And I literally gave the guy a thumb drive. I was like, here's your obituary. Here's your music. Here's your picture. She's like, oh, that's great. Like that would take him forever (laughs) to pull that all together. It's all done, you know? And, um, we went, he had to go downstairs and you have to pick through caskets. And I'll tell you one of the most horrific Parts of that whole visit was going into the side room, and they had caskets for babies. I didn't even want to be in there. That crushed me. It and was those wee absolutely. Those little caskets are not. I look I, at. I looked at it and I thought, "What is that? It's so small." And then it dawned on me, and I thought, "I've got to get out of here. I I just can't stand it." Uh, but you know, you're looking at caskets and realizing just you know how expensive some of them caskets. You know, as one that was eleven thousand. I, I mean, you want to be buried in in, in uh, some fancy fancy digs. <clears throat> I guess you want to plunk down eleven grand for a, for a metal casket or whatever the thing is. 
Um, but you know, you pick your stationery, you pick the casket, you got to pick the color, you pick, um, you know, the different options that the funeral home can do and, and everything like that. It was just, it was a lot. Um, and so you come home and, and I'm going to say this, everyone, if you don't get a life insurance policy that at least covers. Yes. Thank the Lord. We had that 20,000. Yes. It, it didn't cost 20,000, but inflation hits and yeah. funerals. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was a lot, it was a lot of money. It was a lot of money. It was definitely more than my grandfather's was. And it showed you how inflation's kicked in since 08. Um, so you know, get a life insurance policy. You really need to. I told Janelle, I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to get something like that in case something happens to me, Lord forbid. Um, you want to make sure you have all that cover because it literally makes it so seamlessly easy, um, to deal with. So we went through and got all that taken care of. And then, uh, I have to say the hardest time was probably the time between the death and the funeral. And I know you'd said that, and it was. Because you're thinking about all these things. You go up there and you have to pick out the grave plot, make sure that's all taken care of. You have to talk to the township. Um, and the, you have to make the clothes have to be picked out. You're looking for different things that he had. And um, it is just, oh, his Facebook account. I we Luckily, Garen was able to get his credentials. I was able to get in there and... Um, and take all that. And I think we're going to put that into a legacy mode at some point. Um, but it was just, there's so much that goes on and it can be overwhelming. And then the funeral came and, uh, I'll tell you, we decided to do just a one day funeral. We didn't want it drawn out because mom just simply couldn't take it. Um, so we did like a couple one hour for family, two hours for visitors, um, for the public to come in and then do the service. Your dad did an excellent job. He did an awesome job and, um, you know, dad knew him and, uh, um, you know, we did that because it was family and, um, your dad told me, he's like, well, why don't you read the obituary and and everything? And I was like, I don't know if I can. I thought, I guess I could be a game time decision. (laughs) And so we got up there and I read it and I, and I, I got to a point where I thought I can't look at dad. I can't look at anything that's going to tick me, like tick the box to make me cry, you know, because I was trying my best to, to fight that back. And I you had were writing that check. Yes, I, I was. And I was trying to deal with that the best I could because I knew that my family, when I turn around and stand up there, they're going to be looking at me too. And if I lose it, they're going to lose it. And they were already starting to lose it. Like people were already crying and stuff. It was just, Oh my word. Um, Read the obituary just fine. I, th- I thought I was going to have a problem at one point, and I thought, nope, we motor on through. Got through it, got through the funny stories that I had about him and everything like that, and went through that. And then uh, while people were visiting, we had the music that was kind of piped in. One of the songs that probably um, a couple people may raise their eyebrows at was... Um, John- but we didn't care. Uh, yeah, it was we uh, a lot of classical gospel, and there was one different. It was John Williams' Raiders of the Lost Ark, because Indiana Jones, <laughs> that was dad. My dad loved Indiana Jones. Um, but, um, Tim finally sat down and played piano at uh, one of the pianos they had. And they just decided to turn the, um, the soundtracks off and let Tim play as people were visiting mm-hmm. and the funeral guys are recording him and other people recording him. I mean, he's, it, he's, he's really good. Like he's a great pianist. Um, you know, I think a lot of people kind of give Kim Collinsworth a lot of, uh, attention. And I would have to say that when it comes to style and how he plays Tim, Tim is a, Tim's, Tim is a different style. Tim's a different style. He's a different style, but he's just as good, if not better. And he's been around with some quartets and things like that. And he's excellent. I mean, excellent. Um, but anyway, he played and, and did a fantastic job. And it was it was a really good time. 
uh, visiting with people, some folks we hadn't seen for a long time, and uh, a lot of the people from the church that Dad had pastored at uh, most recently. Been there 13 years. That's a long time. So, um, but I, I, I say all this, um, and this is getting to the meat of what we were going to talk about. I thought I'd build up to it. We discussed this. I don't know how a family does it when they have no hope. <clears throat> when your loved one has died and isn't saved, or if you as a family don't know God, I simply don't know how you do it. Because at that point, if you die lost, there is no hope. And the hope is what we base everything on that we do. We, what made it easier for the passing of dad was that because he was a Christian, we knew that one day if we ourselves are Christians and we have, we serve Jesus and we, we love him and we, we've repented of our sins and we serve him to the best that we can, we will see him as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, this leads me into my first text that I want to share, and it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and it says this. But I would not, this is, this is Paul talking, he said, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. You notice he says that the Christians that have died, we say died, he says they're asleep. Well, isn't that what they are? They are. He says that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and, I like this part, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. We were this kinda... led to a very strange conversation on the way to the church. <laughs> we, we were going some dark places with the conversation. Um, I think your dad would have liked that. Yeah, he would have. It was hilarious. It was between you and me and your mom and dad and Garen. And just <laughs> it just went off the rails talking about how complicated that process could be. Um, but this, this is what's so interesting is the body is going to be resurrected, but it will then go through a, a, a like a conversion process to where a new body will be given. And... The, the, here, these saints, these Christians who have died in the past, Paul says they are sleeping. They're sleeping. And he says this, and this is my own Cliff Notes version of it, if, you were not, if, they, if, if they weren't saved, there is no hope. You'll never see them again. But if they were saved and you are saved, you will see them again, and that when Jesus descends down to pick up those that have, uh, you know, those that are alive and remain, here they're going to come. And I thought, you know what? Losing Dad, if it has done anything, it has renewed my determination to make it. Mm -hmm. 
you know, you, you go through life and you serve the Lord, you go to church, you do all these things. But I'm going to tell you something. When uh, Growing up, I remember hearing the older Christians who would testify about, oh, they can't wait to see so-and-so over there and so-and-so this, whatever. And certain songs and sermons just hit a little different for them. And as a young person, you just slough it off. You go on. Let me tell you something. You start losing people you start to understand why they reacted the way they did. Because as you grow older, the people that you love start to go through a transition to where they're not here anymore. They start to transfer worlds and they go to the other side. And the older you get, the more sweeter the other side starts to look. And you become more determined than ever to go because you know who's there. It's not just Jesus, it's family and friends. So... Paul, though, makes the statement here that the dead in Christ will rise first. Those old bodies, those people, they'll be given brand new bodies. And, and when I see that, it makes me realize that there is going to, even though we'll have new bodies, you are still going to have your distinctions about you. Mm-hmm. There is, you, you will know who people are. Um, you go over to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, and it says this. It says, um, after this I beheld, um, and lo, a great multitude. Now listen to how he segments this. A great multitude, which no man can number. Now here, here he goes. Of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues. There's distinctions there between people. He's literally labeled, able to look out there at the people standing before the throne and see the differences in them. We're going to have new bodies, but you're going to be distinct. And you're still, for some reason, going to be able to represent where you came from. Mm-hmm. Because he could see it. So as they stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, their uniform in this, and palms in their hands, their uniform there, and cry with a loud voice, and they do this in unity, saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. I can't even describe for you what that is going to be. And the more I thought about it, I thought, what am I going to say if I die? And the moment I leave my body and I start to go to heaven, what's the first thing I would say? And it went back into my mind as to what I heard dad saying. I thought, you know what? That's probably what mm-hmm. I'd say. I can understand it. I did it. Yeah. You're like, <laughs> yes. Like it, it's done. And the moment he started to break free and, and, and was leaving, I get it. I totally get it. But here, some people say, oh, you're not going to know your neighbors. You're not going to know the people, the Christians that you knew or whatever. You're not going to know them. I beg to differ because here we see there's distinctions that are actually able to be picked out here. Well, the Bible says you will be known as you are known. So I actually talk about that as we uh, oh, sorry. come along. No, that's fine. <laughs> I'll, I'll get there. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 says this, And now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. This is something that... When the writer takes us into in, 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 into consideration, we have really not we we don't know God as deeply as we'd like to, but He knows us intimately. Mm-hmm. But the moment we are in heaven, we are going to have, as Strong's puts it, the eons of eternity, to where we will know God as He knew us. He knows us so deeply. He knows our DNA. He knows our habits, our thoughts, our ways. He knows everything about us. And the moment we transcend worlds and we cross those dimensional barriers and we stand before God and and we're with Him for eternity, 
it will be at that moment where we will finally be able to understand the magnitude of what that relationship is like between he and us to where he, he knew everything about us. But then for the first time ever, we will be able to know him as well as about as deeply as he knew us. Mm-hmm. Um, Hebrews chapter 12 verses one through two says this, wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin, which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, when I look at the cloud of witnesses and you start to dig into that, I find different, different types of thoughts on the matter. Some people tend to believe that it is referencing to the idea of those that have gone on before us, that we are surrounded by the concepts and the theology and the ideas of the many saints who have gone on before us, and that we have that as a reference point to push on. Others tend to believe that in the ways of like what your dad presented, that it's almost as if we, there is a great coliseum, if you will, and there's grandstands, and the people that have gone on before are in the bleachers, and they are watching those that progress down below and we they see them get their victory as well almost like they're able to observe you know obviously not the bad but they're able to observe the victories and to know the progress because i thought to myself the moment the dad crossed i do honestly believe that his mom his dad my other grandmother his you know my older whoever was my older sibling who died before i was born um and all these other people that dad led to the lord knew he was coming And they were waiting for him. Mm -hmm. And I cannot imagine what kind of a welcoming committee that was. Or the welcoming committee that any believer receives when they go up there. And this leads me to a story here. And some of you are probably going to be like, I can't even believe this. But I'm going to share something with you that that my pastor at one point shared with us. And for the sake of privacy, I'm going to change the the man's name to, um, I'll call him, um, I don't know, I'll call him... um, Sigmund. Sigmund. <laughs> I'll call him. Uh, My I'll brain just, goes weird. I'll just say, um, I don't know. I'll call the guy's name. Um, I'll call him Gary. How about that? I'll call him Gary. How is Gary better than I Sigmund? No, we'll just go Gary. <laughs> so my pastor told us about a gentleman he knew in uh, Columbus named Gary. And um, this gentleman was going to have a heart procedure and was on the operating room. And he said that when he had his procedure, um, he said, um, you know, they put me out or whatever. And they told and and when they put him out, he said, they told him later he died on the operating table and they had to bring him back. But he said, the first time I died, technically, he said, I wasn't saved. And he said, I descended out of my body down into a dark place. He said, you could smell it. It was terrible. Mm. And he said, there were awful, horrible things that were there. And he said, I looked and there were people that I had known in my life who had died. And they said, you're not supposed to be here. Why are you here? Don't stay here. Get out of here. Go back. And he said, I was so terrified. I was like, oh God, save me, help me. Or however he told my, uh, my pastor at the, my former pastor. And, uh, he said, they brought him back on the operating table and they didn't think that he would make it. And they somehow brought his wife involved. They got his wife involved. They stabilized him and got his wife and his wife. I believe if I know the story correctly was she was saved 
And he said, I've got to get saved. And he got saved, like he asked God to save him while he was laying there. And he said they, they started to do something else with him, and he said they lost me a second time. He said, but the second time that they lost me, he said, I didn't go down. He said, this time I went up. He said, I went to a place, and he used, he, you know, he described it, and it was just beautiful. And he said, there was peace, and the people there, that he, and the folks that he had known that were Christians were there. And he said, he talked to who, I guess the representation in his mind of whoever he talked to was Jesus. And, and just, he said, it was just amazing. And he said, a man approached him. He said, uh, they said, he said, can I stay here? I said, no, your time is not. Uh, yet, yet, you know, you, you, you have to go back. And he said, a man approached him up there and the man came up to him. He said, yeah, he said, um, you know, you live in Columbus. And he said, um, could you do me, could you do something for me when you go back? And he said, my wife is a believer. And he said, um, she lives in such a, such an area, part of Columbus. And he said, um, she has been having a hard time with my passing. And he said, she needs to get some of my affairs in order. And he said, what she's looking for is such and such a document. He, the documents that, that will help her um, are behind the safe in the garage in such and such a corner. And he said, if you could, when you go back, he said, please tell her. And so this guy, Gary, he, um, you know, he said that was the last that he remembered. And he came back out of that and out of the procedure, they stabilized him. He was fine. He said some time passed. And he didn't really quite know, I guess, how to figure out how to find this guy or this guy's wife. And he said, I went and I, I, he found a church or however it was, he tracked this person down. And he said, it is the most strange, odd thing in the world to knock on somebody's door and say, hi, um, <laughs> you, don't I, know me, but... <laughs> you don't know me, but I know of you because I met your husband and it was, uh, it, you know, and it was kind of hard to explain. But he told her, he said, look, and he told her, he, well, he told her the story and the situation <clears> of what <throat> happened. And he said, um, your husband told me that this, these documents that you need are in the garage behind the safe or whatever it was in the corner back there. And so he said, we both went into that garage and he said, went into that, that place and pulled back that safe and everything. And he said, lo and behold, there was the documents. And when I hear that, it, it, the first time I heard that, it shocked me. And then it also caused me to look at this Hebrews 12 verses 1 through 2 in a little bit different light. And I thought to myself, how much are these people truly aware of our lives? I truly believe that if you, you've had Christian parents, grandparents that have gone on to meet the Lord, they, I truly believe, to a point, are aware of your progress. And they know, they know when you're about to arrive and they know, like, I truly believe that uh, Janelle's grandparents and my grandparents that have passed on before, they knew when we got married, they know if God willing, we're, we're going to have a child, they're going to know. And they knew when dad was coming and they knew, they, they knew every, they know this stuff. I, I don't, how else do you describe that story? How, how do you explain it? Yeah. How do you explain that? You can't say it was something demonic because what it did is it uplifted their faith. It, it strengthened these people. This guy got saved through that situation. And that story has been shared. The, the place, the church, I was at a revival where they shared that story and that altar got, I mean, people slammed that altar because it's, it's something that it, it, it solidifies people to where they go, oh my goodness, this is legit real. 
There's, there's people out there that this has happened to. And I know some people write books for clout and they write it for popularity and, and cost and they want to get money out of it and mooch on it and they lie. But there are some people where this the kind of stuff happens and you go, how do you explain that? How? And I thought to myself, it's like, how do I explain that I heard dad's voice at that moment where he died? The moment where he broke free. How do you explain this guy going and talking to that gentleman who had died, his, his wife, and, and finding those documents? How do you explain it? And I thought to myself, these people are more aware of what we go through and our victories. And your dad did such a good job, and I forget your mom said he got it from someplace, but the way he described it was that all these people that have gone on before, they sit there in the bleachers of the, of the, of the grandstand, and they watch, and they hear they, in the shadows, out comes somebody. And it's like, you know, it could be your grandparents or your dad or, or my dad or whatever, and here they come. And they see them progress towards that finish line. And the moment they hit that finish line, God says, Jesus says, you know, congratulations, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of the Lord. And that person climbs up into the grandstand and they take their seat in the bleacher. And here comes the here comes the next person. And they see as that race is progressed, and as they come across that finish line and they know when it's going to happen, they they see some of the events. I don't believe they are privy to some of the sadness and the awful things because heaven is not a place of sadness. Mm-hmm. And so they they see the good, they know the victories, and I think they they are joyous. You know, obviously, doesn't it say that heaven celebrates when someone comes to the Lord? They they are aware. It's not some separated uh, world that's completely dull and void of, of us. It is very much entangled, and I don't think we understand to the extent that it is. Entangled. It is all wrapped together, and these people that have gone on, these family members, they are aware. They are aware. But I do want to set this precedence, though. It is believers. It is believers. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have no hope. Your life on this earth is as good as it gets. There's nothing more for you, except for the moment you die, and it is hell. I'm just being completely honest and blunt here. When you die, if you are not saved, that's it. It's a, it, there is no hope. And Paul says that. He says, he says the, 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 you know, those that have no hope. It's over for them. Yes, and it's a terrible thing. You know, I've I've done funerals before, where it was terrible situations, horrible things, and to where you can't preach these people into heaven that die, and and basically the sermon turns into preaching to the audience about why you should live your life differently, why you should be godly. You know, it's just. But as a Christian, you have that hope. Because your hope is in Jesus Christ, that when you die, you will be there with him. Or should he rapture the church whenever he chooses, and and we are caught up in the air to meet him, we will be with him, and we will meet those loved ones who went on before us who also had a relationship with Jesus Christ. So, you know, if you are not saved this evening... I will tell you, it is the easiest thing to do just to ask Jesus Christ to save you of your sins, forgive you of your sins, to save your soul, to cleanse you, and and repent and turn from the things that you did. Get a Bible, start reading it, find a good church to go to, 
Maybe you've been wronged by a church in the past. Not all churches are the same. I can tell you that from experience. Not all pastors are the same. Not all deacons are the same. There are good people out there that will help you, that will shepherd you, that will help guide and lead you and help you mature in your, in your faith. There is another world out there. And I think that in the daily life we lead, the media and, and Hollywood and all that, they try to drown it out. Here's more movies to watch. Here's more of this. Here's, a, here's this scandal. Here's this. Here's this sporting event. And here's that. And there's not something, you know, there's, there are some things that are entertainment-wise that are okay, you know. But the world would like you to be so involved in things that you can't give any thought to that eternal destination. Because ultimately, that's the whole goal of Satan is basically, I think, that even though he loses the war, he wants to win the individual battles of the souls. And he wants to, as the Bible says, to kill, to steal, and destroy. He wants to kill the person, to steal their soul. He wants to destroy your potential. And that's, that's what he strives to do. And um, so if you don't know Jesus Christ, I'll tell you, it is the easiest thing in the world to get saved. And uh, to accept him as your Lord and Savior. And he will lead you. He will guide you. You'll see things in a different light. I'm not saying life will be easy. You'll still have family members that will die. You'll still have heartache. But I'll tell you, when the family members do die, and they also knew Jesus Christ and they were saved, oh, man, it's not a goodbye as in forever. It's a I'll see you later. That's what happens. And that is what has helped get me through dad's passing so much is knowing that, hey, dad, I'll see you later. I didn't know what to say when I walked by the casket. You know, I was emotional and I didn't know what to say. And all I did was I just kind of grabbed his shoulder and I kind of squeezed it. And it was just like, I'll see you later. You know, I know where you are. I heard you. I know where you are. I know you. I know, I know that you're going to, I don't know what extent. I know you'll be aware of our victories and you'll be aware of our progress. And at some point as we make our progress through those, through that great arena and we get close to that, that, um, uh, that finish line, He'll be there to watch, and he'll be there to see it, see us through as well. And we'll be able to stand before Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And I, I, it's, I, I just, it's all about hearing that well done. That's all I want. That's all I want to hear. I don't care about anything else. I just want to hear that. And I imagine that the first words out of my mouth, too, will be, yes. <laughs> it's over. It's done. It's just all of it. It's no more. Just, you know, I look back on that and I realize that, that that what he said made the most sense. As soon as he broke free of that body, it was, yes. And that's what I heard. It was the loudest I've ever heard him yell in my life. Oh, good grief. I don't really know what else to say. You did a good that job. was too loud. I'm sorry, folks. That was gross. <laughs> I did it right in the mic. Boo. <laughs> I don't know what else to do. I do want to say that um, I want to give a, a shout out to our pastor at the Nazarene Church. They have been stellar. He's been stellar. They fed our family after the funeral. Uh, we went over there to the church, and uh, your mom and dad were able to see what the sanctuary looked like because your mom and dad watched the live stream. Yeah. And um, just fantastic. Wonderful. It's great to have a church family like that that cares. Um, and uh, it just it just went the extra mile, especially everybody's hungry and they don't feel that good. You don't want to have to go cook or anything and you just sit there. And, and uh, it, there's something about being able to kind of heal around a good meal. 
Yeah. You know, there's something therapeutic. Something therapeutic, therapeutic about, about fried yeah. chicken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> man, I don't know what was going on with those potato wedges, but man, I, them potato wedges were almost more popular. I don't know where those came from, but those things were like, man, they were fantastic. They were like a giant potato that they had quartered mm-hmm. and then breaded and deep fried. Oh, man. It was fantastic. Might have taken five years off my life. I don't know, but man, was it worth it. You better not have it. <laughs> oh, good grief. But anyway... Um, thanks for, for listening to today's podcast. You know, I know it was probably a little, maybe it was a little bit everywhere. Um, but I just wanted to share a little bit about dad's passing and what we went through and that through those experiences, I'll tell you, it's very vulnerable or it makes you very vulnerable. You, 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 uh, it's not, it's not wrong to cry and, uh, it's not wrong to, I know my wife's like, yeah, see, I told you. I, she's, yeah, I see. No, that. I never say I, I told you so I informed you thusly. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> It's not wrong to cry. It's not wrong to have those emotions. But also knowing that if your person that you loved passed as a believer, you will see them again. But as Paul said, make sure that you set aside anything that's going to that's going to beset you or get in your way if you want to see them as well. Anything that's going to get in your way, get rid of it. And Check those fo- values. Focus on the mark. And drive on and run that race with patience and get there. And one day, you too, we all will cross over that finish line with that great grandstand of those that have gone on before and they see us finish and they'll be there to greet us as well. But I want to see, let me tell you something. I don't know where Jesus will be. I imagine he's there to greet all the new arrivals. But man, when I see him, I could probably lay on my face for most of eternity. Because I don't deserve it. I don't deserve anything like that, the what he has to offer. But to think that he died for me, I just can't even fathom it. I can't understand it. The fact that Jesus would die for me before I was ever born, the least I can do is live for him. What else can I say? Well, I think that just about sums it up. So... I don't know. I, I just kind of rambled a little bit this evening, and I guess if I was going to title this whole podcast, to be We Have a Hope. We Have a Hope. We Have a Hope. I know where Dad is. I know where a lot of, uh, what a lot of our family are that have gone on before. And um, I'll tell you, it pays to serve Jesus. It really does. It makes it easier. Oh, you're going to have hard times, but boy, he'll be right there with you. Uh, the other day, I was sitting in the car before we all left to go to the funeral, or after the funeral, whatever, and I was like, Lord... I was like, thanks. It's been it's been hard, but I know you're there, and I felt it. And he was there to help me in that funeral because, man, oh, man, I don't know how I would have made it because it looked like a mountain. I described well, You wrote it as, the check, and then you cashed it. I cashed night. it that night. I did. I, I described that funeral as coming at me like a wall with a door in the middle of it, and I would turn around and put my back to it, and, and, and I'd turn around and look, and it was still there, and I was going to have to face it. <laughs> but, oh, good grief. He helped me with it. I made it through it. And my determination is to continue to serve him and to make sure that I meet the mark and that I make it. That's my goal. So anything else you want to add? I think I'm good. All right, folks. Well, thanks for listening to us on our podcast. We will chat at you later. See you.